to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I would love to hear your thoughts and comments and questions and concerns. My email is hope at upc-online.org. In honor of the turkeys that are bred and killed for the upcoming holidays, on this episode, we are going to have United Poultry Concerns' Karen Davis joining us for an in-depth discussion on turkeys. Of course, UPC is our sponsoring organization, and we are so excited to have Karen on again. Karen was the very first interview on our inaugural podcast earlier this year, so we are happy to have her on again, and we will be getting to that interview very soon. Karen has so much knowledge to share, but first, I wanted to talk just briefly about Thanksgiving. So like many vegans, I I have a complicated relationship with Thanksgiving. For some of us, it can be it can be kind of a difficult holiday to navigate. This holiday in particular centers around food. There's I mean there, that's really all there is to it, family and food and maybe a little football. So and of course, the centerpiece being a whole dead bird. Well, for those of us who are sensitive to this kind of thing and have have made that connection and awakened to the suffering of animals in our food system, just that sight can be really disturbing. And we see it again and again in media, in TV commercials and newspaper ads. It's, It's just ubiquitous this time of year. What finally inspired me to be vegetarian when I was 16 was my mother had cooked and placed on the table a whole chicken. And it was the first time that I really saw the animal's body. I saw her little legs and her little wings, and it so troubled and traumatized me, you know, making that realization that we were eating an animal and that I loved animals and I would never hurt an animal. Yet there I was eating a dead animal. It was just so unsettling and disturbing. And I went vegetarian the next day. So I'm often brought back to that feeling to that realization when I see a whole dead, cooked, decapitated turkey this time of year. It's just such a sad and distressing and offensive sight for many of us. So I went vegan when I was 20, and for the first couple of Thanksgivings in this time period, the vegetarian and vegan time period, I fasted. I just didn't eat for the whole day. I think I just needed to separate myself from the whole thing, kind of counteract this gorging on dead animals that I was suddenly so aware of. And I've since found out that in Dharmic traditions, Eastern religions, fasting can be a way to create discipline, to burn off bad karma. Uh, it also exerts control over a situation where you might otherwise feel helpless. And I think this is certainly what I was doing, perhaps on an unconscious level. I think this was my coping mechanism for my first few Thanksgivings as a vegan. For some of us, when we first have the awakening, the first realization that animals are suffering horribly in our food system, it's hard to understand why your family doesn't see it too. And of course, this time of year centers around family. And when we first go vegan, we so often, so many of us go straight to family with the information because you know your family to perhaps be compassionate and kind. Maybe some are smart and knowledgeable. They certainly have qualities that would make them see the suffering that they're causing just like you do, right? But all too often, they don't, unfortunately. (laughs) 
So we can feel sometimes alone or isolated on this holiday until you find your flow. And for some, that may mean that you need to just separate yourself like I did for the first few years. Just skip the holiday altogether. And that's fine. But this also might create even more loneliness or a feeling of isolation, which is why so many people don't stay vegan because they don't feel supported and they feel isolated. So be aware of that and perhaps you will find your Thanksgiving flow by bringing or making your own vegan Thanksgiving dishes that you bring to the family gatherings. And everything, all the traditional dishes can easily and deliciously be made vegan, except for the turkey, of course. But even with that, there are plant-based turkey roasts like the tofurkey and the unturkey. I actually love these. I love when there's tofurkey at a gathering. Another lovely centerpiece can be a cooked stuffed pumpkin or other squash. Thanksgiving food is actually my favorite genre of food. I love mushroom gravy on everything. So just finding a way to incorporate your vegan food into your family's celebration. But for me, I found my Thanksgiving flow with like-minded vegan community gatherings. I like to be with other vegans this time of year. And in the 90s, I started to host a public vegan Thanksgiving potluck feast, and people loved it. There's so many vegans that don't have family or their family's far away or they just don't feel comfortable being around family this time of year. So we found family and home and community with each other. But of course, we won't be having one this year because of the pandemic. Unfortunately, this will be the first Thanksgiving in decades that I will not be hosting a public potluck. Maybe your Thanksgiving flow might include, as mine often does when there's not a pandemic, organizing or participating in an action for the turkeys, like a protest or a leafleting at a grocery store. These can be really redeeming actions so you don't feel so helpless and sad. It provides kind of an empowering experience. And of course, the most important thing is that you're educating consumers on the suffering that the turkeys endure. But this year is likely to be more introspective, and I would say that vegans need to find individually how they can cope with and celebrate this holiday to try to make it celebratory instead of just a painful reminder of all the suffering and death. Perhaps finding a way to assimilate both, embracing the sadness and mourning for the birds, but also embracing the celebration, the gratitude of friends and family, gratitude for the awakening and the awareness that veganism brings, and being grateful for others who understand us, being part of a compassionate vegan community, animal protection community. We always started our community potlucks with a prayer or a reflection honoring the turkey's lives contemplating the mass numbers dead, not ignoring it, acknowledging it, but then moving into the meal with more joy and gratitude. So I really hope that you can find your Thanksgiving flow, and I pray that one day the turkey will be a symbol of Thanksgiving only in the decorations, and we won't shed the blood of this beautiful bird needlessly, and every Thanksgiving feast will be vegan. If you want more insight into turkeys and my take on turkeys, I invite you to listen to one of our podcasts from July of this year, The Reason for Vegan Series 4, The Turkey Meat Industry Exposed. So go and check that out. But coming up right now, I will be chatting with Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns all about turkeys. So stay tuned. <laughs> So I would now like to welcome Karen Davis. 
Karen has her PhD in English. She is the president and founder of United Poultry Concerns, a national nonprofit focused on chickens and other birds bred and killed in our food system. And of course, UPC is the sponsor of this podcast. And UPC has a sanctuary for birds on the eastern shore of Virginia, which has over 150 resident birds that have been rescued and live there with Karen and other uh, folks that help. And Karen has been on the front lines of the animal liberation movement since the 1980s and was inducted into the National Animal Rights Hall of Fame for outstanding contributions to animal liberation. And Karen's the author of numerous groundbreaking books, one on turkeys that we will be talking about. And these books run the gamut of all kinds of information on the plight and delight of chickens and other birds. And she has spent years in close proximity with these birds, rescuing them, talking to them, learning about them, and generating just volumes of amazing information about them. So I am so happy happy to introduce Karen Davis. Hi, Karen. Hi, Hope. We spoke actually on the first podcast, the very inaugural podcast of Hope for the Animals podcast. And I'm so happy to have you back because, of course, UPC is the sponsor of our podcast. We are so indebted to you and uh, grateful to you for creating this podcast and getting all this information out. So there's been a lot of wonderful information on the podcast and you bring a wealth of information. So we're really happy to have you again. And of course, it is holiday time. So we are thinking about turkeys. And so that's why we have brought you back and we want to talk about turkeys. Many people think about turkeys this time of year. And unfortunately, what they mostly think about is a dead turkey. But we as animal people, you and I and others that are compassionate and caring, think about the living turkeys, the beautiful turkeys. And you have written a fascinating book on turkeys called More Than a Meal, The Turkey in History, Myth, Ritual, and Reality. And in this book, you go into the rich history of turkeys who are native to North America, one of the only animals that people eat that are actually native to this continent. And like the passenger pigeons in the sky, and you've written about this in your book, when the passenger pigeons long ago were in the sky, they were just filled the sky and you couldn't even see the blue sky before they were killed off. It was similar in Oklahoma and Texas on the prairies, you could see wild turkeys covering the prairies for miles. So I want to know more about the history of this beautiful bird, and I know you know so much about that. So please tell us about the history of the turkey. The turkey has a very interesting uh, history. Certainly, the turkey, as you just mentioned, is uh, native to the Americas, to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, They apparently uh, did not exist in Europe or Asia, unlike the chicken or the peafowl, for example. Uh, They are known to be an American bird. And so when the Europeans started coming to this continent in the 16th century, they saw turkeys everywhere in New England, in, on the Great Plains, in Mexico, South America, Central America, everywhere but in the very coldest regions of what became the United States and the coldest re- regions of Canada, for example. There were no turkeys spotted apparently in the Pacific Northwest or in the coldest parts of upstate New York. But elsewhere, they were everywhere, living and raising their families. And there were just thousands and thousands of turkeys in the 16th, 17th century. And then, of course, before that, before the Europeans actually arrived on these shores. And there were also many turkeys found in various stages of fossilization, I guess you'd say, uh, indicating how they had been used by various Native American nations. The turkeys lived essentially uh, large, free lives, 
roaming about in the woods. They loved the meadows. They occupied just about any landscape. Uh, many people are surprised to learn that not only do turkeys walk and run, they fly 50 miles an hour, they can run up to 12 miles an hour, uh, and they swim. Turkeys are good swimmers, both when they're very young and as adults, and they can swim a mile or so across a, a water bed. So that's how they lived until the Europeans came. And once the Europeans came, the turkeys were really just decimated over time until the beginning of the 20th century when the turkey was in danger of being exterminated by the Europeans mm. because they would uh, get their muskets out or whatever weaponry they had and shoot them, for example, in the trees at dusk when the turkeys would, in huge flocks up to a mile wide, the trees would be just filled with turkeys roosting for the night, starting at dusk. And the settlers and military troops and other assorted travelers would get out their muskets or their other firearms, and they would just blast them away. And then they would leave them there. Or sometimes they would uh, fill their wagons with them, take them somewhere, but they often just left them there because they shot them strictly for, for sport. Hmm. And even today, we'll hear about turkey shoots, live turkey shoots, still apparently being conducted in some parts of, of rural America. Uh, these kinds of practices were routinely practiced by the Europeans, and they just shot them all the time. And then in addition, because turkeys would eat the corn or eat the wheat, in the Midwest, for example, whole communities would get together and they would beat the turkeys to death. They would shoot them and in various ways seek intentionally to exterminate them, to protect their fields of corn and wheat from the turkeys. So the turkeys were really assaulted on all sides by every type of weaponry by the Europeans. So that, as I mentioned, by the early late 19th, early 20th century, they were on the verge of extermination. And it was around that time that Fish and Wildlife or whatever its counterpart was at that time, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they began to systematically use the domesticated turkeys, who were of course derived from the wild turkeys, to repopulate turkeys. And all kinds of crossbreeding and inbreeding and penning up the turkeys and artificial insemination, all kinds of methods were used to regenerate a population of wild turkeys. And while that seems like a great idea, unfortunately, the main reason for wanting to revive these populations of turkeys was for turkey hunting, uh, which included and continues to this day to include just sport hunting, as well as shooting turkeys for so-called food. The one big thing that happened for turkeys in the 1980s that is different from uh, previous decades is the advent of the farmed animal sanctuary. Because it was really in the 1980s, starting with Farm Sanctuary, originally in Avondale, Pennsylvania, where I worked uh, in my first farmed animal volunteer job, the, the rescue of turkeys was, and I believe continues to be, a very big part of the work that they do to educate people as well as to rescue and give a home to turkeys and other farmed animals. And uh, it was really at Farm Sanctuary in the mid-1980s when I went to work there as a volunteer that I met actual turkeys. 
So tell us about turkeys. Uh, I know you've met many over the years. Tell us about who they are, their personalities. I love to look at turkeys just because of their amazing snoot and waddle, the skin, that colorful skin that's around their face and their neck. It can change color. Many people don't realize that. They're just incredible birds. Tell us all about them. Well, I didn't know anything about turkeys until I went to work at Farm Sanctuary and then subsequently began to do an enormous amount of reading about them, which ultimately led me to decide to write More Than a Meal, the Turkey in History, Myth, Ritual, and Reality. And I have to say that one of the things that led me to become interested in turkeys in the 1980s was the way they were mocked and ridiculed in the mainstream media. And I subsequently learned in my research that turkeys have for a long time been considered figures of fun, that there's something about their personalities and the way they look. And, and their turkeys have very visible moods, as you mentioned, their faces and those, those wrinkly, bumpy uh, faces and heads of theirs can turn uh, red and mulberry colored and blue and white, depending on the mood they're in. And yeah. if they get into an angry mood and they're all red and angry looking, I guess you could say there's something comical about the way they look at you and the way they are ready to charge you. And I had an experience like that that I'll mention shortly. But turkeys were denigrated and laughed at. And by the time I uh, was reading about them, uh, particularly in the early 1990s, I would notice that every single year in the Washington Post, in the run-up to Thanksgiving, uh, you would read articles about turkeys that just made fun of them, that just slandered them, that particularly insisted that they were stupid, they were dirty, and making fun of their sex life, which really the writers didn't even know anything about. But it, it just seemed like there needed to be a contrast to the piety and solemnity of Thanksgiving that turned out to be the turkey who was created as this mock figure of fun and denigration. So my own experience with turkeys, first at Farm Sanctuary and then in our sanctuary, was what an interesting bird they are. I remember, and I start more than a meal with my profile of Milton the turkey, who was a very large arthritic bronze turkey at Farm Sanctuary, who loved to be around people, humans, beings, because I consider other animals to be people too. So mm -hmm. uh, he loved to be around human beings. He would follow a person, a human being, around the barnyard. He had very gouty, arthritic legs, and he was extremely heavy. I don't know, he weighed 40, 50 pounds by the time I met him. But he was interested in people and things, and he would follow you around. And I have told the story often about how one day a man came to visit the sanctuary, and uh, it was my job to show him around the sanctuary, including going through the barn and introducing him to the various animals. So we were walking around, and this man said something to the effect of, I stopped eating red meat, but I still eat chicken and turkey, which people still say, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not, 30 years later. So we kept walking and talking, and occasionally we would stop for a minute or two, and we'd pause. And then gradually, this man started looking down, and there would be Milton, who would be walking beside us. And then when we would stop and pause for a few seconds or so, Milton would stop with us. and he became more, the man became more and more interested in just Milton. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that Milton was interested in us and was following us and stopping when we stopped and starting when we started, 
And finally he said, you know, I didn't know the turkeys could, could, um, and he couldn't think of a word that he was trying to use that would describe what he was seeing in Milton. And I later wrote that I think what he was trying to say was be companionable. Mm. He did. It was like, he was saying, I didn't know turkeys had consciousness or that they knew anything <laughs> or that they, that they were companionable. Yeah. And um, it certainly had an effect upon him, that experience. But he was certainly struck by Milton's attentiveness to us and Milton's obvious desire to accompany us on our little tour. Mm. So another thing that struck me about turkeys, particularly the female turkeys, the hens, was how... I would be cleaning up, uh, I'd have a big broom and I'd be cleaning up and one of the female turkeys would just sit down right where I was working and I would stop what I'm doing and I would kneel down and I would start petting her back and under her wings and under her beak and I mean she just would never have moved if I hadn't moved first. Hmm. She, her body was so sensitive to being touched to being stroked and petted uh they love to be touched hmm. some chickens like that too uh, others aren't as fond of it but there's no question that they are very sensuous birds and they certainly respond to being stroked and patted and um, just just about anything that you would do that would not be harmful or hurtful to their bodies Hmm. Yeah. And you actually wrote in your book, I'm going to read a quote because I, I really love this quote. You said, a turkey mother will fight fiercely to protect her young, showing how her individual intelligence, ancestral memories, and maternal instincts come together just at the right moment. So talking about hens and uh, their love of pleasure, they also are incredibly protective of their families. Uh, can you talk a little about that? Yes, I can. I think it's really important when we talk about the cognitive abilities of other animals, animals other than human, that we recognize the fact that animals, all animals, are intelligent. If they weren't intelligent, they wouldn't survive. So the cognitive abilities of turkeys, like other animals, includes their ancestral knowledge, which they have evolved through centuries and longer to have, uh, their personal experience and the intelligence that they bring to bear based upon the novel experiences that they encounter in their own personal lives. And then in the case of the turkey hens, if they are so fortunate as to have young, their baby turkeys, their maternal instincts. And a mother turkey is deeply maternal. She knows exactly how to care for her young in a way that is going to protect them in the best possible way. And this protective knowledge uh, is evident when, for example, she begins to search out her nesting place. And it's been pointed out by various people who have had turkeys under one circumstance or another, how very smart turkeys are, turkey hens, are in locating a nesting place on the ground because turkeys like chickens are what they call ground nesting birds. They don't make nests in trees, they make nests on the ground. So because that makes them very vulnerable to predators, they have to locate a place that will be secluded, that will be camouflaged, that will also be near enough to water. So they are very adept at locating exactly the kind of nesting spot that will meet all of their needs to protect their eggs, to protect themselves sitting on the eggs, and that will also allow them 
to be able to get off the nest, to be able to drink water and so on. They will sit on the eggs for about 26 days. And then toward the end of those 26 days, the baby turkeys under them, with whom they have been in direct communication for almost the entire time that the baby turkeys were embryos. The mother turkey and her young as embryos are in constant contact and the embryos are in constant contact with one another. So that by the time the baby turkeys are ready to hatch, the whole family knows one another because they've been in constant auditory contact. Like so vocally, vocally the, vocalizing to each other. Vocalization, right? yes, yeah. they have vocalized. And the mother turkey, when she's sitting on her nest with her young under her breast, feather, breast feathers, knows when a turkey baby will notify her that it is too cold and needs warmed up a little bit more or too warm or too humid or whatever condition the baby turkey is experiencing that is a bit uncomfortable, uh, that the mother turkey needs to adjust how she's sitting on her eggs. So this goes on constantly when the mother turkey is sitting on the eggs. So it isn't just nothing's going on there. It is a constant activity, constant communication is taking place. And then the turkeys begin to saw themselves out of their eggs, making a circle around the egg. The baby turkey emerges from the egg, all wet, very vulnerable. So it takes about 24 hours for all of the viable turkeys to be ready to go on a march with the mother turkey to begin to explore the ground for food to begin to get their exercise and to learn their environment, all of which the mother turkey is teaching the baby turkeys. And they're just an interested a family group. They're interested in everything in the environment. They check everything out. And um, it's been described how occasionally one of the baby turkeys will stray from the family group that he or she becomes interested in something and goes off on her own or falls behind, then at some point begins to realize that she or he is no longer with the family. And at that point, the baby turkey will crane her neck and look all around for the family and listen and then make a very coarse clucking sound to get the attention of his or her mother turkey. And the mother turkey, upon hearing her little one's call of distress and question of where are you, then she will straighten her neck out, up, and so will all the babies who are surrounding her. And she will let out a very loud set of yelps and that's really yelping to her turkey, her lost one. And when he hears that sound, he or she goes racing to rejoin the family. And they're all reunited. Mm -hmm. So they keep in constant contact. And then at night, they, at dusk, I should say, they go up into the trees and the Mother turkey, who has huge, amazing wings, will encircle the baby turkeys on the left side and on the right side of the tree limb or the tree branch and keep them safe for the night. And we have the most wonderful, beautiful photograph of a mother turkey on a tree limb with all of her turkey poults. They're actually called poults, P-O-U-L-T-S, baby turkeys. And it was a beautiful image that uh, once I saw it in a magazine, I just had to have that picture. And mm -hmm. we've used it in so much of our literature. And surprisingly, perhaps not surprisingly, I've met 
many people along the way who said, well, what kind of a bird is that? Because many people in the animal advocacy movement, for example, are so used to only seeing a factory farm full of crowded white turkeys, and of course not with any fa in any kind of family life situation, that to see a mother turkey like that, all with her beautiful, gorgeous, glistening, beige, brown, and golden feathers, and her young under her, and um, just the, the whole family scene, that they uh, don't know what kind of bird that is. Well, she's a turkey. So uh, I will just describe one more, a quick thing about turkeys that I quote in full in my book, More Than a Meal, where a, a woman was walking along in the woods in Virginia, and she describes in a letter to the editor of a magazine, she suddenly saw this hawk swoop down from the sky to obviously grab one of the baby turkeys with its mother. And she describes how that turkey mother just shot straight up in the air and fought with the hawk up in the sky. Mm. She said the turkey was, mother was basically horizontal with her, her back toward the ground and her face facing that hawk. And she just went after that hawk. And of course, at the, at the same time, she had notified her babies to hide. And uh, she fought with that hawk for several minutes until finally the hawk flew away. And the mother turkey then returned to her young. This woman said, you know, it was the most amazing sight, she says to the reader of her letter, I wish you could have seen it. And I wrote, well, actually, we did see it because this writer described it in such vivid detail that when you read her letter to the editor, you see this amazing, uh, quick, immediate response of the mother turkey to the hawk, ready to do battle and even to die uh, to protect her young. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And so we've been talking about turkeys in their natural state, but uh, unfortunately, farmed turkeys have a very different experience, of course. And there's 45 million turkeys that are killed each year in the U.S. for these upcoming holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. But around 250 million turkeys are bred and killed each year in total. So turkeys are killed year-round to be eaten. Only about 18% of those are killed at the holidays. But the holidays are when we really see them, when we see their dead bodies basically prominently displayed as centerpieces in the holiday table. They're on our minds this time of year. So how are turkeys farmed? What about the farmed turkeys? What is their life like? And what has their life become in animal agriculture? One thing I would emphasize is what I have just been describing about the mother turkey and her, her young and about Milton the turkey and the cognitive combination of their ancestral memories their parental instincts and their personal learned knowledge and behavior, and to realize that this is all part of their mental and emotional repertoire. All of this persists in them when they are rounded up and living in a confinement building where they're totally crowded by the many hundreds in a building, just like chickens and other birds who are used as a food source. The breeding flocks or the parent flocks are, well, in the case of turkeys, the flocks don't actually live together in terms of males and females. Uh, chicken flocks, you have like 10 female chickens to every one a rooster living in the same house or the same breeding house or flock. But turkeys have been bred to be so extremely heavy and malformed that the 
natural mating of them can no longer happen. So male turkeys are masturbated by human men who obscenely masturbate them to the point of getting them to uh, produce semen, which they gather up in syringes or vials. So then these vials or these syringes are taken to where the female turkeys, adult turkeys are housed separately and they are tied down and they are artificially inseminated by male, human male workers. Now, this is such a humiliating experience for these birds. There's nothing in their natural evolution that could make any sense out of being treated this way. And it is so disturbing to these very heavy birds who have been bred to be so heavy, 30, 40 pounds or so, uh, speaking of the breeding flocks, sometimes even heavier, that they uh, can easily have heart attacks. The vessels in their breast muscles simply are deprived of oxygen and they have heart attacks. But those who manage to get through this uh, horrible process of being artificially uh, masturbated and then artificially inseminated, and again, the male and the female parent turkeys never meet each other at all. And then ultimately they're sent to slaughter, and then because they're big and heavy and their breast muscle or so-called meat is very tough because they're older, uh, they are then, the, their flesh is then the kind that goes into soups and sausages and uh, highly processed foods like that. The same is with chickens. So then the eggs go into these huge hatcheries into incubator drawers. You have these, these big uh, incubators which are filled with drawers, the same as with chickens. And after 25 or 26 days, the eggs begin to hatch. I remember thinking one day about these baby chicks, turkey chicks or poults in these incubator, draw incubator drawers and how, as I described a few minutes ago, the uh, lost turkey out in the fields or the meadow who suddenly realizes he has become separated from his family gives up out what has been described as a lost call. He gives out a lost call for his family. And I thought one day about how all these baby turkeys, as well as chickens in these mechanical incubator drawers, they give out a lost call to a parent who will never respond to them. Mm. And when you think about that, that that's, that's such a horrible thought to realize, again, the experiences, the patterns of experience that are embedded in their natures, the expectations that they have that will never be able to be expressed, that will never be answered. So there they are. There. Yeah, that's. Uh, I just want to say that's really an interesting thought that I hadn't ever really considered until just now. Because when you were talking about that, the lost call in the in the field with the mother turkey, I started thinking about a kid like in a grocery store that gets lost and cries, you know, and the mother's frantically looking, and then they reunite, you know, and and it's similar to that, but. What you're saying now, these turkeys in the incubators, in the in the hatcheries, they're orphans. They will never have that joy of reuniting with the family and that comfort and security of, of that feeling. They're constantly in that state of feeling lost and alone. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. And you know how when you read the poultry science or poultry industry literature, they're describing the loneliness of these turkeys and uh, the anxiety they have when finally after their, uh, they go through what I'm going to describe in a minute, the so-called service rooms, uh, how lost they are 
and not having their mother. Yeah. Uh, they often starve to death because they need their mother to help them to learn about eating. But essentially, they are in such an alien situation. There they are, all plunked down by the hundreds or thousands, all baby turkeys, no mother, no one to comfort them except each other and each other's feathers. And they are lost, and they are lost for life. Mm. And um, again, I think it's very difficult for us to imagine a lifetime of being lost in that way, to have those expectations embedded in their nature that will never, ever be answered and satisfied. But let me briefly describe how once these turkeys, all of the viable turkeys hatch in the incubator drawers in these hatcheries, then they are thrown down these chutes. Uh, they go into the part of the hatchery where they are separated into male and female. They have their beaks burned off. They have their toes amputated. And there's a fleshy uh, part of their face uh, above their beaks called a snood that is also uh, cut off so that they are mutilated as soon as they're born on the first day of their lives. And when they have been de-beaked and de-toed and had to have their snood removed and all of that, they are, as one poultry scientist actually described in a turkey production magazine, he said they have been traumatized. That's their experience of waking up in the world. They wake up to trauma, and in fact, the trauma began uh, before they were born. But uh, what, is what is done to them on their first day of life, uh, the pain, the suffering, the terror, they are traumatized. Mm. So now they are put in the crates, they go to the turkey houses and plunked out of the traits and, you know, basically thrown on the floors. They're dumped out and thrown on the floor in the wood chips or whatever kind of bedding may be there. Often it's very dirty and has been there for through previous flocks of turkeys. And they're like the chickens who are bred for meat. Their, their purpose in being alive is to turn into a huge muscle, muscle tissue, breast muscle tissue. In the case of turkeys, it takes them three or four months to reach what they call slaughter weight. Many turkeys die of heart attacks uh, when they see uh, their fellow turkeys uh, dying of a heart attack. Often that will cause other turkeys around them to have a heart attack too. Again, they're very fragile. And we have to realize uh, the uh, terrible things that have been done to their bodies to predispose them to heart attacks, to extreme respiratory distress, so that heart, lung illnesses and deaths are very, very common among these turkeys, the same as with the chickens who have been bred for meat. But they will actually, their, their sensitivities are so uh, strong amongst each other that the death of one turkey has been described as causing other turkeys around them to have a heart attack right in the same within the same time frame. Hmm. So, and they're and they're so young to be that oh, yeah. sick. Right. They're not even of the age yet when they would start mating, uh laying eggs, mating. No, they're just baby turkeys, but yeah. they're, you know, they're huge. And again, as with the chickens, it isn't only the size to which they grow so rapidly, but it's the rate of growth which is so hard on them because their blood has to keep pumping out all this oxygenated blood. Their heart has to keep pumping out all this oxygenated blood to uh, nourish this rapidly growing body. And another part of all this terrible uh, dystopian experience that the bodies of these turkeys are enduring is that they are very disproportioned so that between the disproportion of their internal organs, the forced rapid growth of their bodies, and then the enormous size, all of that makes them tend to be lame, to be, make it difficult for them to walk. And then remember that their toes were all cut off in the hatchery. So they can't get a grip on the floor as they would 
if they had their toenails. So I know that from our sanctuary experience that when we have adopted turkeys from a turkey production background, and they don't have their toenails, um, that just adds to the difficulty they have in walking normally. Mm. Yeah. There's a quote in your book, I'll read it here. Turkeys are knowingly tortured with agonizing paralytic electric shocks prior to partial neck cutting in U.S. slaughterhouses. Every piece of flesh consumed was riddled with agony. So tell us about their death. Well, their death is horrific. We've been through their life, which is horrific. And now when they are trucked in the crates, stuffed into the crates, grabbed in the middle of the night or during the day by their legs upside down, thrown into the crates. Uh, the crates are loaded up on the flatbed trucks and driven to the slaughter, turkey slaughterhouses. And I can tell you, when you see a video of these turkeys, often they are in freezing cold weather in places like Iowa, the Midwest, which, which is the, the region of the country where the turkey uh, business is, is, uh, is centered. And there it is, they're in the snow, it's freezing cold, icicles are hanging onto the turkey crates. And I, I, how they, these turkeys must feel, you can't, we can't even imagine how they feel. Because again, I emphasize, there is nothing in their experience that in any way prepares them for what we do to them and what they go through until they're finally mercifully dead. So here they are driven up to this hellish, horrible, steaming slaughterhouse. Like the chickens, you know, they're unloaded in these crates. They're just banged down one on top of the other. They're grabbed upside down by their legs. They're clamped by their ankles onto the uh, disassembly line. They are pulled through a trough filled with electrified splashing water. This is called by the industry a stun cabinet, but actually it is not a stun cabinet at all. It is filthy, dirty, electrified water, the purpose of which is to uh, open their pores of their feather follicles so that their feathers will come out more easily after they're dead and to fit them to the machinery of the slaughter process. Now these birds in being uh, subjected not to electrocution because electrocution means that you kill somebody, whether it's somebody in a, the electric chair or whether you intend to kill the individual uh, in question. This is not electrocution. This is electrification to paralyze the birds so that they are fully conscious, but they cannot move their muscles. So they are in total agony. They are then subjected, as they're hanging upside down, to a revolving tooth-like blade, which cuts their necks, which be, may be more or less successful in actually reaching their carotid artery, this is happening so fast. I mean, these birds are whizzing by, you know, 175 birds per minute. So then they are intentionally kept alive to keep their hearts beating. Then they go to what is called a bleed out chamber, a bleed out room. They hang there for about 90, 90 seconds. And then dead or alive, they are thrown into scalding water tanks. And, and with, the, with, the, with the pumping, I just I want to clarify because I think people don't realize this. The reason that they don't kill them immediately or cut their heads off entirely is that they want the birds to be alive. The heart is pumping, so the blood drains out. If the heart stopped, if they were dead, the blood wouldn't drain as fast. So they keep them alive intentionally to pump the blood out. So there's this agonizing minutes that they're still alive pumping the blood out, correct? Correct. Yeah. It's more than a minute, it's 90 seconds. So yeah. it's at least a minute and a half. So are there any particular turkeys that you've met or you've rescued or you've encountered that you want to tell us about? 
Well, I could tell you about a number of turkeys who we have had here in our sanctuary at United Poultry Concerns in Virginia, but I'm going to tell you about two female turkeys. These were the first two turkeys that we ever adopted into our sanctuary. We adopted them from Farm Sanctuary, and their names were Myla and Priscilla. Myla and Priscilla have very different personalities. Myla was a very gentle-hearted Pacific turkey. She would, now these were both the, the large white turkeys. They had been rescued from a turkey farm uh, by Farm Sanctuary and we adopted them. They were brought down to our sanctuary, which at that time was in Maryland. They were the heavy white turkeys. They were under a year old, but they were maybe four or five months old. Myla was a very gentle turkey. She was very sensitive uh, to people. Uh, she loved to be petted and she was just so sweet natured. Priscilla was a moody turkey. She didn't like to be petted all that much. And I would go so far as to say she was a pretty angry turkey. <laughs> Uh, for which I can't blame her. I mean, she had been de-beaked and de-toed, as had Myla. Mm. And uh, she had come from uh, cruel circumstances, as had Myla. But her temperament, her personality was different. And uh, when she got into one of her dark moods, she, her whole facial expression and body language would show that she was getting ready to charge you. And usually this was me and my husband, Alan, Kate. It was like, watch out, okay? And she occasionally did that with visitors. But one of the interesting things was that when Milo would see that Priscilla was getting into one of these moods and getting ready to charge me or Alan and me, she would intervene herself between us, the targets, and my and Priscilla, and she would utter these soft, pleading yelps to Priscilla to please don't do that. Please, she did uh, what she could to calm Priscilla down. Mm. And time and time again, she was totally successful. Wow. Eventually, after several minutes, Priscilla would calm down. Her dark face colors would, you know, relax into a lighter shade. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and then she would um, no longer be ready to charge us. And it was clear that Myla not only perceived the signals that Priscilla was giving, but she, she recognized that Priscilla was going to do us harm if she could do it by biting us or something. And um, Myla took action. Wow. She just came right between us and Priscilla, and uh, she would uh, go back and forth between us with those soft yelps. Eventually, she would resolve the potential attack. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's so cool. She intervened with compassion. <laughs> yeah, she really did. She really did. Time and time again. I love it. Well, we do need to wrap up. It's been a really amazing discussion, but I wanted to ask you, what, what, what would you say is the most important thing you want us to remember about turkeys and be able to tell others? I want us to remember and tell others, turkeys are very intelligent, emotional, aware individuals. They love their lives when their lives are going right for them. They love their families. They love the earth. They will love you if you treat them well. And all of their behavior will show you how friendly, how affectionate they are toward you. And a number of years ago, when I was talking to my husband, who has since passed away, um, but who was our vice president for many years in those early days? 
I said to him, you know, I want to create a button that would have a really interesting slogan on it for turkeys. And I want something that's really catchy. And he said, well, how about don't gobble me? And I said, well, that's great. Don't gobble <laughs> me. That's it. That's our, that's, that's what every turkey is saying to us. Stand back. Don't gobble me. So let's remember that in the heart of every turkey is that plea. Please, don't gobble me. Treat me with respect. Let me live my life. Don't gobble me. Mm, I love it. That's great. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. You can learn more about turkeys and all that Karen spoke about on our website. That's upc-online.org. And you can also order Karen's book uh, there about turkeys. The book's called More Than a Meal, The Turkey in History, Myth, Ritual, and Reality. And you can order it on the UPC website. I'll also put a link to that book in the show notes. So this year's holiday is likely to be a bit different, perhaps more intimate. So this may be a great year to start a new tradition of compassion with a delicious all-vegan Thanksgiving feast. And that will benefit everyone. It benefits the planet, our bodies, and of course, the beautiful turkeys. So from all of us at UPC, we wish you a happy and compassionate holiday. And please make it vegan.